You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 367 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. So we'll let you know right up front that this will be a bit of a different show because we have an announcement and then we'll take just a quick look at one of the mysteries of the Battle of Gettysburg. So it'll be a mini episode. Exactly. But the announcement is something kind of exciting, or at least we think so. For quite a while, it's been our dream that one of us could work on the podcast full time. And while that's not quite happening, this is perhaps maybe a step in that direction. You see, Rich has the chance to transition from full time to part time at his job. So we talked about it and felt this would be a good time to take advantage of that opportunity, which we're only able to do thanks to the generous support of so many of you through your memberships on Patreon and your donations. Right. So we wanted to say thank you to all of you who support the podcast in that way. I'm really excited about the extra time and energy I'll have to devote to the show. Last week was actually my last week of full-time, and this coming week I'll be starting my new schedule, so we'll see how it goes, but yeah, I'm pretty excited. You know, there are so many times when both Tracy and I have come to the weekend and we're just out of gas from our day jobs and the work week, but we still feel like we have to try to dig down deep and get an episode out for you guys. Some weekends, though, that just didn't happen, which would stress us out and which you'd notice as a missing show, but would usually be us just trying to take a weekend to act like real people and rest and relax before hitting it again on Monday morning. Anyhow, now, with me being able to work on the podcast quite a bit during the week, We're looking forward to having mostly happy and stress-free weekends. Which I think will be great for our marriage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, we're extremely appreciative for this opportunity and grateful that so many years of hard work on the podcast have brought us to this point. And so very thankful for the support of so many of you, which has made it possible for us to take this exciting step. 
Yep. Uh, so thanks, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. During the mid-morning of July 3rd, 1863, a detachment of the 6th Michigan Cavalry was spread along Crest's Ridge, east of Gettysburg. The countryside had already begun to heat up under the summer sun, but at least the federal troopers' view of the idyllic landscape was pleasant and unspoiled by any sign of the enemy. Stretching to the south in the direction of the Hanover Road and Low Dutch Road intersection were the handsome fields and orchards of farmers John Rummel and Jacob Lott well-tended and crisscrossed with the series of stone walls and rail fences. To the north lay more fields and meandering farm lanes. However, the unspoiled view of the Michigan troopers was soon ruined by the sight of a heavy column of enemy horsemen approaching from the north. The Federals quickly mounted up and reported back to their brigade commander, Brigadier General George Custer. The Federals had spotted the approach of Major General Jeb Stewart's Confederate cavalry. Just the day before, Stewart and his men had finished their long and grueling journey to Gettysburg. Brigadier General Albert Jenkins' brigade of rebel horsemen, which had been operating with Yule's Corps since entering Pennsylvania, had been added to Stewart's command that very morning. Jenkins had been severely wounded the day before by a fragment from an artillery shell, and although Colonel Milton Ferguson was the second-ranking officer in the brigade, Ferguson was doing provo duty, herding prisoners of war in the rear, and never, apparently, received word of Jenkins' wounding. So on July 3rd, the men who joined Stuart were under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Vincent Witcher, who normally led the 34th Virginia Cavalry Battalion. Witcher's men headed the column of Confederate horsemen approaching Crest Ridge. 
Rooney Lee's brigade, under the temporary command of Colonel John Chambliss, followed Witcher. Behind came the brigades of Brigadier Generals Wade Hampton and Fitz Lee. On paper, with these four brigades, Stuart's command on the morning of July 3rd had a strength of nearly 5,000 men, but in reality would have fallen far short of that number. The three veteran brigades of Chambliss, Hampton, and Fitz Lee had suffered severely from exhaustion and attrition during the long and grueling eight-day journey to Gettysburg. Charles Dabney, an aide to Stuart, placed the number of men still in the saddle on the morning of the 3rd, aside from Jenkins' brigade, at 2,500 men. For example, Chambliss's brigade of the 9th, 10th, and 13th Virginia and 2nd North Carolina Cavalry had started the campaign with over 1,300 troopers, but by July 3rd was down to just 300 mounted and ready for action. Unaware that he had already been spotted by the detachment of troopers from the 6th Michigan, Jeb Stewart led Witcher's and Chambliss's men through the woods along Crest Ridge, hoping, as he put it, to, quote, effect a surprise on the enemy's rear, end quote. After instructing these two lead brigades to remain concealed, Stewart rode up to the ridge line at its western end and searched the fields below. The Rummel farm lay before him, with the lot farm next, continuing south to the intersection of the Low Dutch and Hanover roads. West of the lot farm lay a series of open fields and a tiny tree-lined creek, Little's Run, that started on the Rummel farm. However, because of the rolling nature of the terrain and the fact that the Federal horsemen were in position in the low ground near the intersection, Stuart either couldn't see them at all or couldn't gauge their strength. Therefore, Stuart ordered up a gun from the horse artillery battery of Captain Thomas Jackson and directed that it fire a number of random shots toward the enemy. And here's the mystery surrounding this incident. Because with the firing of these cannon shots, legend has it that Stuart personally directed that four shots be fired, one shot toward each point of the compass, north, south, east, and west. Stuart never explained why he did this, and mystery and controversy have surrounded this action, which is an act which, on the face of it, is a bit odd, since if he was hoping to surprise the enemy, then announcing his location with cannon fire seems a bit counterproductive. It's often claimed erroneously that those shots were fired to notify Robert E. Lee of Stewart's arrival at that spot in the Federal rear, and that he was ready to begin his attack on the Hanover and Low Dutch Road intersection. This, of course, presupposes that Lee planned for Stewart's movement to be coordinated with Pickett's charge. However, as we said in the last show, there's actually no evidence at all that Lee planned any such thing. Right. First, no coordinated, two-pronged, infantry, cavalry assault on the Federal front and rear is ever mentioned in Lee's, Stewart's, or any other officer's official report. There's also not a single contemporary letter, diary, or other document 
claiming the two actions were coordinated in any way. Second, Stuart and his horsemen began moving out of their camps about 6 a.m. on the morning of July 3rd, long before the Confederate infantry attack that came to be known as Pickett's Charge was even an idea in Robert E. Lee's mind. Remember, Pickett's Charge was actually Plan B, and not what Lee originally planned for July 3rd. There's no record anywhere that anyone, after Stuart set out on the morning of the 3rd, gave him specific instructions or any information that had to do with Pickett's Charge. A third... It's simply ridiculous on the face of it to think Stuart would have fired these cannon shots to notify Lee of his presence in the Federal rear. Even if they heard them amidst all the other noise on the battlefield at that time, no one on the main Confederate line on Seminary Ridge would have been able to distinguish those particular cannon shots as any type of signal from Stuart. It was a member of Jeb Stewart's staff, Major Henry McClellan, who claimed in his post-war memoirs that Stewart ordered four shots fired north, south, east, and west. However, even this detail is suspect since it would have made no sense for Stewart to fire behind his position since he had just ridden up from that direction. In his book, The Complete Gettysburg Guide, J. David Petruzzi writes that in all probability, Stuart fired only three shots, each aimed differently to strike across a broad front in the direction of the Hanover Road, where he expected the enemy guarding the crossroads to be located. This makes the most sense, if Stuart's purpose in firing these shots was really in the hopes of getting some sort of response from the Yankees, so that they'd reveal their position and strength. Major McClellan, in attempting to explain this incident, in fact offered up that explanation as one possible reason for Stuart firing these cannon shots. And if Stuart was attempting to get the Federals across the way to reveal themselves, then firing those shots may not have been illogical in view of his concealment of Jenkins and Chambliss's men, since Stuart may have been attempting to disguise his own strength by keeping those units hidden until he had a better idea of the enemy's position and numbers. So, at any rate, that, in a nutshell, is the mystery surrounding Jeb Stuart's instructions that some seemingly random cannon shots be fired off here. Which, yes, the whole controversy seems a bit silly, Except this incident has been connected with the myth that Stuart's movement on July 3rd was coordinated with Pickett's charge. It's clear, however, that Stuart had no specific knowledge about what came to be known as Pickett's charge as he rode up to Crest's Ridge on July 3rd, and that his actual goal was to engage the Yankee cavalry here at the intersection of the Hanover and Low Dutch Roads with the hope of exploiting such an action to his advantage once he'd captured that important spot in the Federal rear. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. But rather than a book recommendation this time, we have a video recommendation. Yep, 
Uh, there's actually quite a few excellent videos that have been done by Gettysburg Park Rangers, filmed on location at different spots on the battlefield, including at least a couple about the fighting at East Cavalry Field. You can just Google something like Gettysburg Ranger videos, and all of these videos should pop up. Most are on YouTube, although there was a series of short presentations called Coffee with a Ranger, I think, that only seem to have been posted on Facebook. Anyway, we've watched pretty much all of these Ranger videos, and they're great. And we've always meant to recommend them to you guys, so that's what we're doing. Don't forget you can find all of our book and video recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information about joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon, just like Andy K., Raphael S., Wayne G., Stephen F., Beth, Douglas B., Larry B., Christine, Christina, Xavier L., Paul F., and Constantine all did this past week. We also want to thank Phil and Logan for their donations. And then as the curtain comes down on this show, we want to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of every episode is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.